Well, some of you might remember, I shared this story early this year, I think maybe it was late last year, um, but I had a Goanna walk into my office. I think I told you that, didn't I? I think I've got a picture of it up here. Um, this Goanna walked into my office and I was like, what is going on? I heard this pitter-patter of steps behind me. I thought it was one of my kids, but it was actually this Goanna. Um, and then just the other week, uh, I met Hudson here, right? And Hudson, this guy was just at his, um, I think it was the year, year 11 Duke of Ed camp. Is that right? Duke of Ed camp. Um, and you caught a Goanna. Is that right? You caught a guy out of his bare hands. I was like, I needed this guy, right? I needed him. I think we've got a picture of him uh, catching it. This isn't, that's not Duke of Ed, though. That's earlier on. That's a different one. But, you know, he does this for a living, this guy. Um, he's a modern-day Steve Irwin. He even looks like him. Take a look. Um, and pity I didn't meet Hudson earlier this year, right? Now, why do I share this with you? It's a very long bow. Uh, but, and it's not primarily... Um, so that you've got, you know, Hudson here to turn to in, in the case that you happen to have a Goanna that kind of walks into your office or your house or something like that. But it's an illustration of when uh, things go awry, when you feel like you're out of control, right, that you don't know what to do, uh, you look to others. You look to someone else. You look to a leader who has the skills that you don't have to solve the problem that you're in. Um, And we do that not just in our own lives when we have an issue that we can't resolve, uh, but that's what we look for in our community, uh, in our country, in our world. We look for leaders who can resolve our issues, our problems. And it seems wherever we turn, we are looking. We're crying out for someone to deal with the problems that we face in our world. Uh, You've probably been watching the news Sri Lanka, right? And we'll be praying for them um, uh, hopefully uh, tonight, um, they're in the midst of an uprising as people seek to oust corrupt leadership and instate just and wise government who will deal with the economic problems that Sri Lanka faces. I've seen it in the UK, of course, recently. Prime Minister Boris Johnson was forced to resign to, due to a number of different scandals over recent times. And so what are they looking for? They're looking for a leader with integrity and with truth. Now, when we come up with a new, and when a new leader is installed, rather, uh, sometimes we're hopeful. Uh, Hopeful that a new leader will bring change, good change. And you know what? Sometimes they do. But any change, of course, is temporary. And as we'll see today, even the greatest of leaders, and, and probably what who was this person, David, King David, the greatest of leaders, not simply in Israel's history, but probably the world's history. And yet we see this man, he fails in the most catastrophic way. Uh, As we look further into, or take a closer look rather at 2 Samuel 11, I want to encourage you, let's pray before we hear God's word tonight. Let me pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you that you are the God who has sent your Son, that you might send your King into this world, who might rightly lead this world for your glory. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's 
begin point number one, the catastrophe. Uh, we read from verse one these words, In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. Now, I want you to imagine you're reading this passage for the very first time. I know it's a very familiar passage, but if you're reading it for the very first time and you'd read those words, what you'd be expecting to hear more about is this military campaign against the Ammonites. But verse 1, David remained in Jerusalem. And it's to Jerusalem that our attention now turns. We read from verse 2 these words, One evening David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. Now the contrast to the scene of war here is quite stark, right? Joab and the Israelite army are engaged in battle. It's life or death stuff, right? But here, the scene for David is so different. It's evening. The sun has set. David's been resting on his bed. And as dusk comes, he arises from his bed and he strolls out to enjoy the cool evening air. The scene here is one of peace, rest and calm. But more than that, it's safety. Safety from the ravages of war, or so it seemed. For David, as one writer put it, was not safe from himself. The walls of Jerusalem were no protection against his own deep flaws. Again, we read verse 2. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. Now, there's no hint that this woman is acting provocatively. Rather, she's probably bathing inside, but the elevation from David's palace as he watches down from the roof makes her visible. Then we read verse 3, And David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, She is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Just see those words, David sent. David is using his position of power not to serve, but to be served. Rather than turning his attention away at that point, he turns his attention towards her. And when the news came that she was Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, his conscience should have been pricked at that point. You see, Eliam was the son of Ahithophel, one of David's mighty men, one of his chief warriors, who was at this point fighting for David in battle. More than that, Bathsheba here is described as the wife of Uriah the Hittite. She was married. Uriah was a resident alien and, like his father-in-law, one of David's mighty men who was currently fighting for him. I was reading part of Psalm 119 during the week and verse 11 goes like this, I have hidden your word in my heart. Why? So that I might not sin against you. I've hidden your word in my heart so that I may not sin against you. 
You see, the word was not in David's heart. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. Exodus 20, verse 17. You shall not commit adultery. Exodus 20, verse 14. And I think it's a good thing for us to stop and reflect. We come to church every week, and that's fantastic. That's great. But I want to ask you, is the word in your heart? Do you know it? Is it something that you reflect on during the day? I want to encourage you, if, if you're not someone who memorizes scripture, it doesn't have to be a lot, but take that opportunity because when you do, it is always in your heart. David had all the warning he needed not to go any further, but he didn't. Uh, David, David took, rather, verse 4. Have a look. Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him and he slept with her. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David saying, I am pregnant. Did you see those two words again? David sent. And this time David took. Uh, Many years earlier, the prophet Samuel had warned God's people about a king like all the other nations. And what would he do? He would take. Have a look. He will take your sons. He will take your daughters. He will take the best of your fields. He will take a tenth of your grains. He will take a tenth of your flocks. He will take. David, who for so long had refused to take power, if if you've read uh, 1 and 2 Samuel, he refused to take power from the anointed King Saul. He wouldn't do it. Rather, he waited for it patiently to be given to him by God. But now he takes. I want to ask you the question, does this event in the life of David, shocking. As you heard it read, did it shock you? Because I want to say it should. It ought to shock us. I think for many, and I hope this is not you, but, but maybe some, as they listen to this story, they might think, is this really that bad? What harm was done? And particularly if that, this happened today, with, with modern contraception, the resultant risk of pregnancy is very low. And if no one was the wiser, what harm is done? People have sex outside marriage all the time. With the proviso that Bathsheba consented, because consent is at the heart of what's important today. You've just got to consent and that David wasn't coercing her, what's the harm? But if that's what we're thinking, as many in our modern Western world are increasingly thinking, they are grossly deceived. You see, what we espouse today as sexual freedom is actually deeply enslaving. For sex becomes not a gift, and not a gift to give in the safety and the protection of a lifelong bond between a man and a woman for the purpose of children. Rather, sex becomes a self-centred lust that is all about my taking of pleasure and my quest for personal satisfaction and gratification. And it's not surprising because the purpose of life is my happiness. 
Well, David has forgotten God, hasn't he? He's forgotten his word, but Sheba is pregnant. How will David respond? Well, he responds with point number two, the cover-up. And we read from verse six, so David sent this word to Job, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Job sent him to David. Did you see those words again? David sent. Seems David is in control. He thinks he is. But we're hopeful that maybe David has come to his senses. You know, he's had this catastrophic fall. But maybe now, as he calls Uriah back from the battle lines, he will lay all his cards on the table. And we might think that if this is the first time we've read this and we've only read the life of David so far, we would be thinking David's going to, he's made a mistake, but he's going to come, he's going to put it all on the table. Right, he's a good man. Confess his sin to the one he's betrayed to seek forgiveness and to make amends. But we know the story, that, that doesn't happen. As Commander Job sends Uriah to David, we soon see David's deceptive intent. His plan, of course, is Uriah, for Uriah to sleep with his wife so as to cover up the pregnancy. But unfortunately for David, Uriah lay not with his wife, but verse 9, at the entrance to the palace where all his master's servants lay. On David's inquiry as to Uriah's unusual behaviour, Uriah responds, verse 11, these words, the ark in Israel and Judah are staying in tents. And my commander Job and my Lord's men are camped out in the open country. How could I go to my house to eat and drink and make love to my wife? As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. You see the sharp contrast here? The contrast drawn between the integrity and the faithfulness of Uriah and the flagrant indulgence of his king. What will David do? Will Uriah's piety, in contrast to David's own deception, maybe convict David of his sin and cause him to come clean? I had a moment last week where my eldest daughter, Emmy, Uh, She sheepishly came to me and she said, Daddy, I've got something to show you. And she walked me to her bedroom and she unfolded her doona and hidden under the doona was this hand towel that was smeared with, I don't know what, some sort of red Play-Doh substance. I don't know what it was, but she explained what had happened and, and said, I'm sorry, Daddy. And I said to her, I forgive you. But then I said, Imi, I am so glad that you told me. And any time that you do something wrong, whether it's small or big, she thought it was really big, but always tell mummy or daddy. Always tell us. Don't be afraid. Don't try to cover it up. And that's because in confession, there is freedom from the darkness and the guilt of sin. Diedrich Bonhoeffer once wrote these words, sin demands to have a man by himself. It withdraws him from the community. The more isolated a person is, the more destructive will be the power of sin over him. Sin wants to remain unknown. It shuns the light. 
In the darkness of the unexpressed, it poisons the whole being of a person. But in confession, the light of the gospel breaks into the darkness and the seclusion of the heart. In confession, the last stronghold of self-justification is abandoned. But unfortunately, David is still a long way from confessing. He will confess, but he's still a long way from it. He devises another similar, but what he believes a better plan. Have a look from verse 12. Then David said to Uriah, stay here one more day and tomorrow I'll send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. David says to Uriah, verse 12, remain in Jerusalem. We've heard those words before, haven't we? It's an eerie echo of verse 1 where David remained in Jerusalem. Of course, Uriah's integrity of conduct, in conduct, of conduct rather, while he remained in Jerusalem, continues to contrast that of David's. Have a look, verse thirteen. At David's invitation, he ate and drank with him, and David made him drunk. But in the evening, Uriah went out to sleep on his mat among his master's servants. He did not go home. As one writer put it, Uriah was a better man drunk than David was sober. David's plan B fails. Again, we're left wondering, what will David do? And what comes next, if we've read the life of David up until this point, is as unexpected as it is horrific. In verse 14 to 15, this letter is sent from David to Commander Joab. And in it is instructions about the murder of the innocent Uriah. Once again, David uses his royal authority, but not for good. Here is the king who on more than one occasion of his, in his life he had the opportunity to kill King Saul. You might remember that. He had an opportunity twice to kill him and he deserved it, but he didn't. He didn't use his power to kill, but here he uses his power and authority to kill not a guilty man, but an innocent one. And it works. In verse 18, we read of the news of Uriah's death reaching David's ears. And David's response is sobering. There is no grief. There's no grief here from David. There there is no remorse, only relief. My sin has been covered. But in doing so, he shows to us the blindness of his own evil actions. David responds to the messenger who bears this news of Uriah's death and he says to the messenger, say to Job, don't let this upset you. Or literally he says, do not let this thing be evil in your eyes. See, David's heart had lied to him, blinding him from his own evil actions. His conscience was seared. He cannot see his own sin. In the words of Romans 1, he suppressed the truth by his wickedness. The scene finishes with Bathsheba in mourning, but nothing of David. He does not mourn. 
And then for the first time in this whole chapter, the Lord is mentioned in the final line, verse 27, these words. But the thing that David had done was literally evil in the eyes of the Lord. It wasn't evil in David's eyes, but there was another who watched the unfolding events of 2 Samuel 11, and he said, that is evil. It was evil in the eyes of the Lord. I want to ask you tonight, do you believe that God is watching, that he sees everything, everything that we do? He knows every thought that we have. He sees everything. And I don't know about you, but that's a scary thought. He knows everything. I want to say to you that it should invoke a deep fear. But not a fear that makes you run away from God, but a fear that makes you run to him. Uh, Charles Spurgeon often spoke of the fear of God. And he said there is a right and wrong fear of God. That God sees everything in our lives ought to make us fear falling on our face before a holy Lord, but falling leaning towards him. And what he meant by that is that God is completely holy and righteous and perfect. He is just and will judge all sin. But if you're a Christian here tonight, then he is also your heavenly father who loves you. He loves you more than you could ever imagine. And so when you fall, you fall forward to him, the one who will catch you in his embrace and he will say, I love you. You are mine. I forgive you. Uh, We won't look at it today, but next week we'll see the extraordinary kindness and mercy of God who through Nathan the prophet would say to David these words, the Lord has taken away your sin. But here in chapter 11, we see the extent not primarily of human sinfulness, but David's sinfulness. Here is God's chosen king, the king after God's own heart, now an adulterer, a liar and a murderer. But somehow, and this is the most remarkable thing, through God's chosen king, God will keep his promise. That promise we heard last week from 2 Samuel 7, your house and your kingdom will endure forever. As we open up the page, first page of the New Testament, which Charlotte did for us, we're reminded of God's faithfulness to this promise, right? In spite, even through David's sinfulness, God remains faithful. We read Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, these words. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, who? The son of David, the murderer. And among the many skeletons in the closet, the ancestry of Jesus includes, verse 6, the wife of Uriah, the Uriah whom David killed. See, that's the most extraordinary thing, that God, in his sovereignty, 
will work through even evil people to achieve his purposes in his son. So what hope do we have? What hope do we have when the greatest of our leaders fall? And they do, we see it all the time. I want to say our hope actually is not in human leadership. Human leaders are just like you and I, sinful, and they fail regularly. No, our hope is in God's leader, in God's king, the king who's going to return to bring his rule and kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. And so it's appropriate as we finish that we're going to pray. We're going to pray that prayer that Jesus taught us to pray. And ultimately, it's a fulfillment of 2 Samuel 7, that God's kingdom will be established through Jesus forever.